Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. I'm sick, so if I start coughing um, out of nowhere, that's why. But what's been going on? Everyone's been like... I think last week you were talking about how people have been talking about... It's the flu. I got the flu shot yesterday. I'm invincible now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did we say who we're listening to or did we just go into a rant? (laughs) You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. In the studio today we have Lauren, who's panelling... We have Ayan, we have George, and myself, Anya. Good morning. So, George, no more marking? That's complete? It's pretty much done. There's a few stragglers yeah. to go. But, um, yes, it's, it's very nice to be able to be here with a bit of a clear head. Um, so, I think we're going to jump into a song. This is actually a song that got me through some stressful times in the last few weeks. Does, do any of you listen to Carly Uchis? No. no. So she's a um, Colombian-American singer, songwriter, poet and recording producer. I think it's really going to be up your alleys. I know I sometimes play things from left field uh, for Tuesday Breakfast, but I think this song is a good one. It's on her new album, Isolation, and this track is called after the storm it was actually um created with ja- like um in a jamming session with bad bad not good mm. so you can really hear their sound in in this track all right i'll play it hi i'm maurice and i'm mario and we're chronically, chronically chilled a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Three CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. So that was Kali Uchis with a track from her new album, Isolation, called After the Storm. You're listening to Tuesday Brecky. Today it's going to be 17 degrees with a possible light early shower. 
Well, I got showered on on the way to work. So, uh-huh. so it's already happened. All the way to 3pm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh-huh. the uh, light early shower. Yep. <laughs> My fringe will never look the same. It looks great. <laughs> what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Has a nice little mm-hmm. rounded bit mm-hmm. at the bottom. Mm. That moving, was intentional. Moving <laughs> right along. <laughs> <laughs> so what have we got up now? News headlines, baby. What's happening on the front of the Herald Sun? Oh. Uh, what is happening? You know what? I don't know. This this Victorian election, this whole like tough on crime thing. It's the absolute worst. It's isn't getting it? out of control. But um Anya, you um you have something coming up tonight where you'll be talking about tough on crime, is that right? Um yeah. So yeah. I'll be on um Done by Law this evening. I think it's at five thirty. And we're going to be talking about this very exciting report that um, me and a couple of other rad people have been working on for the past 12 months. Um, I don't want to spoil it too much, so you'll just have to tune in, I think. Mm. Sounds awesome. Yes. Um, so up next, we'll be joined by Jane Green, who is the media liaison for Vixen Collective, which is Victoria's peer-only sex worker organisation, to discuss the Victorian Liberal Party's proposal to introduce the Nordic model. And we'll be right back. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Uh, you are joined in the studio by Ayan, Anya, George and myself, Lauren, and we are here with Jane Green, who is a Victorian sex worker and the media liaison for the Vixen Collective. Thank you for coming in so bright and early. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Much appreciated. So um, let's jump right in. I feel like you and I have been having this conversation for a couple of days now. Yes. Um, so the Nordic model. Um, it's back in the news. Very much so. Very much so. Um, but it's kind of one of those things that I think a lot of people have, um, I won't say the wrong idea, but a certain idea about that maybe isn't um, the actual narrative. So do you want to run us through what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's by proponents of the model. It's often referred to these days as the Nordic model, um, which gives the wrong impression because it's not actually in place in all Nordic countries. Um, it's in place originally in Sweden in '99, and it's in place in three of the Nordic countries and also in Canada and France. And it's often referred to as client criminalisation because it does criminalise the clients of sex workers, but it criminalises uh, a lot of the surrounding activities relating to sex work as well. So it surrounds... Um, 
criminalisation for clients, but also for third parties, so people that facilitate sex work, so owners and operators of brothels, mm-hmm. um, managers, receptionists, drivers, security. Um, and in Sweden, when it was introduced, it also criminalised landlords, so people that provide accommodation or premises from which sex work can be conducted. So in Sweden, when it was introduced, um, it was actually called Operation Homeless. So sex workers... Um, ended up in a position where they were very much rendered homeless because of the way the laws mm-hmm. were introduced. And obviously that has a massive impact on people's lives. Um, and I think it's important to realise that when you criminalise the clients of workers, then police aren't psychic. They can't just tell when someone's walking down the street that they're a client of a sex worker. The way that clients are criminalised is by surveilling sex workers to find clients. So it involves a tremendous impact on sex workers' lives. And when police are trying to find clients to target them, they're forcing sex workers to engage in practices like police avoidance and to conduct their work in areas that are isolated Mm. and away from places where they might be safer. And also, sex workers that may want to work together in small collectives or even in pairs could be prosecuted under Swedish model or Nordic model laws for facilitating each other's work, uh, for essentially pimping each other. So it did lead to sex workers being penalised and criminalised as well. And also things like advertising for sex work are criminalised. So it's not simply client criminalisation. Wow. And so, I mean, I guess that just renders it pretty much impossible to work safely as a sex worker or possibly even to work at all, right? And so um, fairly obviously then the Vixen Collective and Scarlet Alliance have come out pretty strongly um, in opposition to the proposal. Um, So the Victorian Liberal Party are proposing that this is a policy platform that they'll implement at the next election. Um, Is there there much research into... um, how this actually would impact um, Australian sex workers? Do you, would you imagine it would be much the same? Um, yeah. Well, there's been a recent report out of the impact of the Nordic model in France, and I think it's really useful to look mm. at the effects of the model on sex workers' lives. So that report has shown that sex workers in France had uh, suffered a loss of income, Uh, 78% of sex workers have suffered a loss of income, that their living conditions, 63% of sex workers have had a detrimental effect to their living conditions, that 42% of sex workers have experienced an increase in violence in their lives, that 76% of sex workers have found that their relationships with the police have either not improved or got worse, and that 38% of sex workers have found it harder to demand condom use with their clients, Mm. And those things obviously are not good. Mm. There's really serious negative impacts of the law. And we would see those impacts play out here in Australia. And obviously Victorian sex workers and the representative organisations of sex workers, which here in Victoria is Vixen Collective, and at a national level is Scarlet Alliance, Mm. deeply concerned and are going to fight hard to make sure that does not happen. And here in, in Victoria, the Liberal Party have supported that by their state council, but it's not been taken up by the parliamentary party mm. as policy for the election yet. And that's why we're fighting so hard, because it cannot happen. Mm. And so 
something that um that I came across um and George might have also recalled this as an undergraduate doing gender studies at a university that shall not be named but is not particularly friendly to <laughs> sex workers um there was quite a strong idea that the Nordic model um so called or this client criminalization kind of comes from a place of wanting to protect um, or support sex workers. Um, and this primarily conflates sex workers with victims of trafficking and that sort of thing. Um, how would you respond to people who state that they're coming at this from sort of a protective um, or a supportive angle? Well, I think you have to look at the evidence and what I've just mentioned, the fact that it forces sex workers to work alone, that it isolates us from support mechanisms, that it makes things like screening our clients harder. And when you criminalise clients, they don't want to engage in things that we need, like giving us information. Um, They call us from block numbers. It makes us harder to get things that make us safer. Um, It lowers our income, which workers in any industry engaged in any sort of work no, doesn't make your life easier. Um, it exposes us to violence and it reduces our access to police. How does this help or protect sex workers in any way? And there's substantial evidence that the Nordic model doesn't actually do the things that people that push for it say they want it to do. It doesn't reduce either sex work or trafficking. Mm-hmm. And the stated aim of the Nordic model is that it's an end demand model, that it's there to drive sex work out of existence. Now, that just hasn't happened in any country where the Nordic model has been implemented. And in fact, in several instances, and notably in Sweden, there's been evidence of police corruption, including a police chief in Sweden being prosecuted for pimping. It's not working. Mm. And what sex workers ourselves say is that we want full decriminalisation of sex work. And there's evidence that shows that when full decriminalisation of sex work is in place, it gives sex workers greater access to police, greater access to support services. And when we have that, we're more able to report instances of labour rights violations, just like workers in other industries are. And that's what we want and that's what we need. Yeah. Look, it makes sense. Um, so, obviously, the campaign is um, is going strong, and if people want to join in or support or just learn some more, um, where can we direct them? Um, to uh, the website of either Scarlet Alliance, which is the national peak body for sex workers, or to Vixen Collective, which is the representative body for sex workers here in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And if you follow us online, uh, on Twitter, it's at Vixen Collective or at Scarlet Alliance. And sex workers are a very much engaged online presence. So look for us on Twitter. Sex workers are speaking out very vocally mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, and there's the hashtag no to Nordic. Um, sex workers are engaged. Listen mm-hmm. to us. And that's the one thing sex workers always say. Mm-hmm. Listen to sex workers. We're the affected community. And that's a key thing with any marginalised community. Mm-hmm. People should be listening to the community concerned. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very interesting. And so we'll go to a quick community announcement before we are back with some more. The voice of West Papua, rock. As a West Papuan living in Australia, I can sit down and while I'm cooking dinner, listen to the voice of my people and also give the opportunities for my children to be able to listen to it and to our awesome music that's coming out of our country that you wouldn't be able to hear on commercial radio. We love the voice of West Papua. Brilliant show, great hosts, fantastic information, and we love the voice of West Papua. (laughs) 
for the November 2018 state elections. Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house of the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. That You just heard from Jane Green, a Victorian sex worker and the media liaison for the Vixen Collective, talking about the um, so-called Nordic model for sex work that the Victorian Liberals are threatening to bring in. And over the weekend, I attended a, fam- a May Day family event that was held outside the Victorian Trades Hall. During the fun and the marching, I had the amazing opportunity to speak to some of the participants, including Pilar from Completeda Be- Belabu, I'm so bad with names, Jeffrey from Voices of West Papua, and Jill, who was there with the West Papua office and the West Papua community in Melbourne. Hi, my name's Pilar. I do the Completada by Lovely program on 3CR Wednesdays at 6.30. I'm here at May Day March because I come from a strong tradition in my family and I was originally born in Chile of um, respecting the rights of workers and everything that um, workers and unions have fought for. I think it's really important to commemorate that. I think it's really important to remember that the (coughs) labour gains that have been made by the union movement, um, we need to remind a younger generation that unions did fight for those basic rights that you have now at work. For example, the eight-hour day. Um, We're here uh, on the corner, there's an eight-hour monument. That monument represents the eight hours work that was um, successfully gained here in Victoria in the early 1900s. And those things are important, especially when we live in a neoliberal world where those rights are slowly, or not so slowly, being eroded. And it's important to remember that if we act collectively, we can still bargain for basic rights and that's really important and I feel like if you're a young person today starting the workforce you might not necessarily know what those rights are or you might not necessarily think that you have any rights or any bargaining power and I feel like this is kind of one of those days to remember all of those things and it's good to see lots of friendly faces and it's good to see people of all ages Um, I wish there were more people here, but, well, we'll keep building that. I come from West Papuan community, and, um, uh, yeah, I'm here today to to basically, like, my main mission is to 
to raise awareness about uh, about uh, ongoing silent genocide that currently happening in West Papua. And West Papua is the place uh, really closer to Australia. It's actually closer, it's closer than Tasmania, really. And and but not many people heard about the uh, ongoing genocide that happening there. And and yeah, and I just want to raise the awareness and hoping to get support from the from the local uh, Australian here to to support what's 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 happening in West Papua. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, we the we have uh, our radio show that. Uh, on every week, it's every Tuesday from 6.30 to 7.30, so the show called The Voice of West Papua, so to the, to the listeners out there, you can, yeah, you can tune in, and also you can, uh, uh, to, you can go on to Facebook, we also have our own uh, Facebook page, also called The Voice of West Papua, and we also have a uh, our own uh, campaign struggle called uh, Free West Papua uh, Movement. So um, and yeah, so that you can find that in uh, in Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. So um, yeah, so we 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 started yeah we we are we have already started the campaign there. And um, yeah, and if 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 you, if you want to find out more about the struggle, you can. Uh, Contact uh, Tricia Community Radio, uh, or, or um, and find us through uh, Facebook or social media, and send us a message, and, and yeah, and we would like to get to know you, and 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 yeah, and help us to raise the uh, the issue. My name is Jill. And I'm here with the West Papua office, along with the Melbourne West Papuan community and the West Papuan Voice of West Papua 3CR program. And we're here to spread the word about the, um, the campaign for a free West Papua and the human rights problems that are occurring under the illegal occupation by the Indonesian government in West Papua. And the fact that... Um, they have banned free press to go in and report and investigate human rights um, crimes that are occurring on an ongoing basis. So generally, I've been part of the uh, workers' movement. That's why I'm here for May Day to um, to support the workers' union, the unions. Um, although I'm currently not working, um, and it's a good opportunity to help educate people on the situation in West Papua because, as I said, we don't hear about it on the news. We hear nothing about the daily atrocities that occur over there. Considering that it's um, very close to Australia, it's on Australia's doorstep, um, closer than to Darwin, closer than Sydney to, is to Canberra. So Australians are particularly ignorant about the situation there. And um, I guess, yeah, I've enjoyed working with the community. And that was Pilar from Completeda Belabi, Jeffrey from Voices of West Papua, and Jill, who was there with the West Papua office and the West Papua community in Melbourne. Voices of West Papua is a 3CR show. It comes on Tuesdays, 6.30pm to 7.30pm. 
and completada belable is on Wednesday 6.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. What the hell is a completo anyway? It's a Chilean hot dog. What happens when lots of people get together and eat completos? It becomes a completada bailable. If you really want to experience a completada bailable and support our 3CR community, come to our fundraiser Saturday, May the 19th from 7 p.m. at the Moreland City Band Room, 16 to 22 Cross Street, East Brunswick. Highly danceable tunes by DJ Randy Castilla and DJ Twins. Live music by the Amazonics. Limpiese la boquita que le quedó paltita. The voice of West Papua rock. As a West Papuan living in Australia, I can sit down and while I'm cooking dinner, I listen to the voice of my people and also give the opportunities for my children to be able to listen to it and to our awesome music that's coming out of our country that you wouldn't be able to hear on commercial radio. We love the voice of West Papua. Brilliant show, great hosts, fantastic information, and we love the voice of West Papua. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You are in the studio with Georgie, Anya, Ayan and Lauren. And it is that time again for Alternative News. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It's time for alternative news. Well, sad times. Ayan, how are you feeling? <coughs> well, thanks for throwing that at me because, as you know, I am a huge fan yeah. of um, Juno um, Diaz. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a writer of um, Afro-Dominican background. He's... Um, He's American as well. Um, he has written a lot of books that I've fallen in love with because a lot of the books look at the experiences of people living in the inner city, um, inner city US, especially NYC, New York. Mm-hmm. And as someone who grew up in the inner city um, suburbs and who grew up in like a similar, had a similar background, I guess, in terms of being a refugee, in terms of being. Um, uh, coming to a new country and being placed in a very dense place like, you know, well, the flats, I guess, for um, a lack of a better word. So, um, and he, the, way, the stories that he talks about, like, I can see my cousins in those stories, I can see my uncles, I can see my best friends. So for me, that's why I gravitated towards his writing. Mm. Um, and recently, um, a writer... Z.Z. Clements, um, during the, I think, the Sydney Writers' Festival, she um, shared that he had forcibly, he had forced a kiss on her, and um, others in the writing community came out and shared their own experiences 
of his misogyny and his um, mm. hostile attitude to dissent, especially when it was dissent from uh, women. Um, so that's what happened. And today we thought we would just try to unpack that and see what this means for us. Um, what does it mean when your favorite writer is accused of something horrific like this? And also, um, side note, I, th- I think a few weeks ago he um, put out an article <coughs> in the New York Times. Was it, Lauren? New Yorker. Yeah. Uh, the New Yorker, uh, where he talked about his own experience, uh, his experience of um, being a child abuse victim, um, a sexual s- s- child survivor. Is that? Is that survivor of child sexual yeah. abuse? Yeah. So he shared his own experiences of that, and um, when I when I read that piece, I was like, "Oh God, he's so brave, he's so strong." I was really happy that, as especially from communities where, you know, hyper masculinity is a thing. I mean, that's all across communities, but when you're a person of color and your worth is tied to your hyper masculinity, um, it's a lot different. So for him to share that, I thought that was a brave move and it would help others in similar situations come out and you know and feel like it's okay to talk about it so with all that <clears throat> that being in the background um what what did you all think mm-hmm. of it when you heard it was very disappointing um i think also because um i think lauren you tweeted about it about this myth that people who are abused as children or you know as adults um, might go on to become abusers themselves. It's mm. it's not true. It's never been proven. Yet there's this myth, mm. and a lot of people took, um, you know, his um, story of, of survival um, as if he was preempting this, you know, recent spat of accusations. Um, and it was just really disappointing. Um, but also, it's so harmful for survivors mm. of sexual abuse in general. Do you mean it's disappointing that people have um, said that he was preempting these allegations by talking about his own story, or it's disappointing his behaviour like towards these women? I think both, mm. um, but I think as a writer, especially as a person of colour, he has that responsibility um, to be better. You know, mm. like that's unfair, I think. Mm. But mm. but it is his responsibility, um, and whether or not he preempted this with that article. The narrative now is that he did. Mm. And, yeah. And there's a writer on Twitter. Uh, well, she's a, she's a writer and um, she's also um, someone who, you know, says a lot of profound stuff. Um, her name is Evelyn Arulin. Am I pronouncing it right? Arulin. She's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. She was on a panel um, as well uh, during the Sydney Writers Festival and she also um, contributed to um, the conversation and she was saying which I thought was amazing um, she was saying that there's an there's a place to see him as a victim but also see uh, hold him accountable as well mm-hmm. that him being a victim doesn't excuse it but th- that can also play a factor and um and I just thought that was like a very, not generous way, but sometimes it's sometimes it's easier to write someone completely off and mm. be like, they're this horrible person. Um, but, you know, mitigating circumstances 
are things that sometimes should be taken into account. Um, not not to say that it justifies it, but um, yeah, that it's possible to to sympathize with the woman he's he's been alleged um, to he's been alleged to have abused, and also sympathize with what happened to him in his childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's a difficult one, and um, he cancelled his. Um, thingy, yeah. Sydney Writers Festival, yeah, yeah. And we were supposed to go to one last night. You and I had, um, you and I, Anya had tickets booked. Did you have tickets? Mm, yeah, uh, Lauren as well. Yeah, so we were really looking forward to that, and now it's just opened. Mm. I think it's interesting, <coughs> though. He himself kind of, um, uh, and I look, I'm a bit fuzzy on. I read the um, New York Times mm-hmm. or the New Yorker magazine piece a while ago. Um, but I think in it he was he references um, sort of that he that he has issues with um, with masculinity and with women and with um, intimacy and and those sorts of things as a result. So yeah, I think it's worth. Um, I don't know. I think this is this is another one of those Azizanzari kind of Me Too moments mm-hmm. where it's like it's just not as clear cut um, and it's and it's not the it's not the totally perfect or the totally terrible mm. um, abuser. It's it's something. And I want to know what you guys think about um, consuming people's art. Mm, I was just going to talk about yeah, that, I, um, separating the art from the artist. Because this is kind of, this has been raging a bit with Kanye West mm. at the moment. Yeah. Um, and now Juno. And, mm. you know, people have been talking about this for ages with Kevin Spacey and Aziz mm. Ansari mm. and, like, yeah. Sean yeah. Penn. I watched Milk before I found out about Sean Penn, so I don't even know what happened there. with Sean Penn. He was very violent towards Madonna in the um nineties or the eighties mm, or something yeah. awful. Mm. Um But yeah. Milk was such an important movie. Yes. Right, yeah. yeah. Um and I watched it and then I found out about um all the allegations mm. and it was very unsettling. Um because the movie was so important, the message was so important, but this person is doing something that I'm very opposed to, as, as everyone mm. should be. Um, that was very difficult. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't think I have an answer. I think for me, um, focusing on someone like R. Kelly, who's an R&B singer, mm-hmm. and he's been accused of for a long time, like if, if two decades now, of having um, sexually abused underage girls, right? And to have also preyed on them <clears throat> at a very young age, like 17, 16. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, and everyone has pretty much forgiven him for a long, long time. Um, and everyone sort of, and and there's been articles as to why people have let R. Kelly off the hook. And, and some of these reasons pe- people have come up with is that his victims are not worth saving. You know, his victims are young black girls, right? Young black girls from um, a low socioeconomic background. So girls who are seen as disposable, and perhaps that's the reason for his longevity. And even though there's videos of him, um, trigger warning, um, of him pissing on girls, or pissing on a girl, um, an underage girl, and it's clear as light that it's him. Um, people are sort of like, yeah, but he's made amazing music. Mm. Um, yeah, but I'm not condoning him. Uh, I think what he did was wrong, 
but I, you know his music has touched me and mm-hmm. and and there comes a time when you yourself have to come to a decision right mm-hmm. um is this somebody that you support is this is this you know somebody <clears throat> it's it's also if this is something that he's it, it's a pattern R. Kelly has ha, just recently he was just accused of holding a like a a cult of mm. young girls who were like his sex slaves and I think his his management some of his management have left and I think it's it's now because of the whole Me Too movement mm. which um, really puts mm. the attention on these men right mm. <coughs> And nothing hurts these men more than their like nothing hurts them more than like a dent to their pockets, mm-hmm. right? And unfortunately, that's where you have to get them mm-hmm. where it hurts their career. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just I don't know. I think, especially his music, R. Kelly's music is very sexual, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all it's all about sex and just doing all these things. And then you think about who he's attracted to and who he's um who he sleeps with and mm-hmm. it's young girls so it's it's hard for you to be like oh but this is this is just his music no mm-hmm. the things that he talks about he's perhaps doing that outside like mm-hmm. in his own bedroom with these young girls so i can't condone that that's why mm-hmm. i don't listen to r kelly anymore um yeah so with mm-hmm. going back to um <clears throat> Jeanette diaz yeah, that's going to be a difficult one. Mm. Uh, I read something on Twitter that um, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something like, stop worrying about the art that you never get to see because, you know, someone's been alleged of abuse or whatever. Start thinking about the art that you never get to see because the victims have been silenced forever. And wow. I think that sort of changed the way I think about mm. things because these young girls could have been amazing artists, and mm. maybe they will be, but he's stopped that from happening yeah and that's one way to look at it and that's how i you know decide whether or not to support someone's art mm-hmm. and there's so many alternatives anyway he's not the best musician out there and yeah juno's not the best writer out there mm. so <coughs> yeah georgie what do you think it's interesting you know like we're clearly living in a society now where when the public does condemn a public entertainer um, it does have real ramifications for their career. So in that sense, I think we do have an obligation to boycott or stop listening to artists because of the power that it can have. So I think it is a, re- yeah, it's a really difficult dilemma. And I, I think when it's someone that you really love, yeah. it's painful mm. because it's like this reconciling the fact that you really love and respect this person, but actually coming to terms with what they've done. Mm. So there's a pain in that, but I think it is a really important step that the community needs to take. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And imagine if that was a personal relationship that you had. You know, if a friend or a partner yeah. did something horrible, you would go through that grieving process as well. Mm. Mm, I like that. You've given me something to think about. I mean, it happens a lot. I'm sure we've had experiences where we know somebody who's been accused of something, someone that we care about. and <coughs> Yeah, it's mm. it's hard, but it's also important to believe the woman when they say um, when they tell their truth mm. as well mm. alright well we might go to a song yeah so this is a track by a local group called 3070 and it's called Steady Haze 
November 2018 state elections. Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house from the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colin Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Welcome back. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. We have Lauren, George and Anya. Um, So we're going to be playing one of our favourite... Well, it's my favourite track. I don't know why I was it's about to, get to yeah. speak on everybody else's behalf. <laughs> but it's an amazing song. Um, just some content warning. Um, there might be a few sexually suggestive words and um, lyrics, I guess. Um, but it's an amazing song and it's all about um, women owning their bodies and, yeah, um, just doing their thing. So the song is called uh, Lady Marmalade, and this is the contemporary version with Christina Aguilera, Little Kim, Maya, and Pink. The floor 
sisters, better flow. Oh, I love that song so much. I made sure I got in Little Kim's part. I had to, because that would have been disrespectful. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and we're playing that in honour of um, our support for sex workers today, obviously. Um, so, George. Yes. So, on the line, we have Gabby Stroud, who is a freelance writer, novelist, and former teacher. She joins us this morning to discuss the uh, Gonski 2.0, a report that has sparked widespread debate about the future of Australian teaching and education. Hi, Gabby. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, George. Thanks for inviting me along. <laughs> so, just before I get into some questions, I just want to mention some facts that you uh, included in your article on the ABC. So you mentioned that student performance is at an all-time low based on international measures of achievement and up to 50% of new graduate teachers leave the profession within the first five years. So there's clearly some significant issues with our education system that need to be addressed. Can you just talk us through some of Gonski's recommendations? Okay, so there was a lot to be hopeful about when I first looked at Gonski's um, latest recommendations. So Gonski was suggesting things like we should measure growth and learning based on where a student starts, not based on their age, um, which is always a good thing because teachers know you start from where a learner's point of need is at. Uh, Gonski also suggested um, that we need our students to be engaged and connected learners and that we're preparing them for a changing world. That's part of Teaching 101, but it was good to hear that that was in the recommendations. And also that we would make the system adaptive and innovative and improve it to meet students' needs. And along with that, Gonski um, was talking about a shift from an industrial-era model of education to something that was more modern and, and contemporary. The, the thing I found with that, though, as I read on and as I read more about it being unpacked in the media, was that the devil would be in the details. So um, while there was sort of going to be this brave new world of education, we were still clinging to some things that concerned me a little bit. So things like online assessment to diagnose literacy and numeracy levels, um, individual learning plans, but no sort of detail yet as to how that would be prepared and implemented and assessed. Um, formative ongoing online assessments that would replace NAPLAN, but these would still be reported nationally. Um, and I, I heard a lot about um, that we're going to aim for 12 months growth or 12 months progress, progress for each child in 12 months of schooling. And that also gave me cause for pause as well. So, yeah, there were, there were things about it that made me feel hopeful, but also things that I uh, raised my eyebrows over. Yeah, because it sort of sounds like all of these things in and of themselves seem really positive, yes. but it's how, how they're going to be implemented and who is actually going to be doing this work. Yes, that's exactly it. And that's been, um, you know, some researchers and unions were critical of it because it does lack that detail. Um, there wasn't much research cited in the report. Um, and teachers were sort of saying, well, yawn, yes, you know, this is more of the same and, and it's not a shift to the 21st education and the 21st um, century thinking that we need. So, again, theoretically, it all sounded good, but the devil um, was in the details. Yeah, my um, my dad's a teacher, a new teacher, actually, and when I brought up Gonski with him, I could just see his eyes glaze, glaze over and this kind of fear, like, what is this going to mean for us? Yeah, that's absolutely right, and that's what teachers feel you know it's it's 
it's frightening and it's actually a little bit insulting to get home from a day in the classroom, flick on the news and hear that your profession is going to be overhauled. Mm. And it's, you know, and who's doing this overhauling? Men in suits. You know, who are you? When have you ever been in a classroom? What yes. do you know about my little learners that I face in front of me each and every day? And so because you used to be a teacher, and this conversation seems quite connected to your experience, why why did you leave the profession, and is it related to some of these issues we've been discussing? Yeah, so I left because I was actually losing sleep at night, lying there feeling morally and ethically conflicted about the work I was being asked to do. So I was finding that there was so much data collection, so much reporting, the weight of accountability was really pressing on me. There was so much administration and I found myself wishing that the students I taught would just stay at home so I could get my work done. And that to me is a massive conflict because that's not teaching. Unless there's someone there with you and you're teaching them, then you're not being a teacher. And ultimately what happened for me was that I was, um, I'd been teaching kindergarten for several years and I I would lie awake at night when the end of year assessments came around because I would know that the next day I would be pushing my kids through tests. Some of them, tests that they, I knew they couldn't do. I knew that they would fail. And there's something that happens to me as a teacher when I'm looking at a child and the child's looking at me and the child's saying through their eyes, they're saying to me, you know I can't do this, so why are you making me do it? That was really painful and difficult for me and I just knew that I couldn't do it anymore that that to me is not teaching Mm. and it must be so difficult when you're sort of like this cog in a wheel that you can't really change the you know the culture of the institution or the rules but you have to and you have to kind of follow them and the difficulties that would come with that Mm, absolutely and look I used to rage and rage and rage against it you know I'd be the one um you know bitching and moaning constantly in the staff room saying why do we have to do this and what can we change about it and what if we all just didn't do it and you know but the thing is being a cog in the wheel you work alongside other cogs and if they're just willing to keep on turning then you're virtually forced to as well yeah so that that's where I reached that point of um decision making and change and it was interesting too because towards the end when I knew I could feel I could feel myself sort of changing and falling apart and not being able to do this job anymore. And I was saying to my colleagues, I can't do this anymore. And they would laugh it off and they would say, we all feel like that, Gab. Holiday soon. Hang in there. You'll be right. Um, But for me, it was something much, much, much more dramatic than that. I, I really felt that teaching was moving away from me and that I wasn't a teacher anymore. Mm. And it's good to see now that you haven't just left, you know, you're still having an, an influence in another way to change some of these things. How, how would the recommendations of Gonski look for a teacher in a regular day with a full class load? Uh, I hate to think. I, I really can't imagine because I don't know how teachers currently working at the pace they're at would fit in anything more. Um, I, I imagine it will actually look like more of the same. Um, I think that what uh, this report is doing is just kind of changing a few things. It's relabeling, re, rebadging some stuff that we already do. Um, I think it's going to actually look a lot like what we see already, which is disengaged kids or, you know, kids that are sort of struggling to enjoy school being raced through overloaded lessons, overloaded curriculum, and there's a harried teacher there standing nearby with 
probably with an iPad in hand, ready to check mark a box. I don't, you know, I don't see it as any great kind of revolution or revelation within within our current class. Mm. And so in terms of other sort of options, I wanted to ask you about this idea of democratic schools, which uh, there are a few in operation in Australia and some more internationally. What is your understanding of these schools and do you think that this is the way forward? Yeah, absolutely. So democratic schools are really student-focused, individualised learning. Um, They don't necessarily group students by age, although some do. and it's all about student needs and student learning. So it's very student-focused. Certainly, I believe democratic schools are the way forward. But the thing I find ironic about all of this is that those fundamental principles are what teachers are taught when they attend uni. It's what we know about learning. It goes back to Vygotsky and Piaget, like foundation principles of teaching and learning. Um, so to me to sort of look and go, oh, democratic schools and is this the way forward? And, you know, it, it was pretty much the way we were doing a lot of things from the 80s right through to the early 2000s. And that was the time when our schools on international me- measures were growing and, and seeing great achievements. So what I'm seeing is that it's, the government has become involved. Things have declined and schools are, are moving. They're being forced to move away from that model where we put our students Mm, so is it sort of like teachers really know how to do their job? It's the fact that there are all these pressures placed on them that make it difficult to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, Kigonsky's credit, I believe that he is aware of the terrible state education scene and I do believe he's aware that teachers are struggling. But unfortunately, whenever you get someone like Gonski in or a politician in to suggest changes, if you consult with the people that are not in the profession themselves, you're not going to get the effective remedies that you need. Mm. And it's been interesting to follow the responses. You know, we've had the Australian Education Union say that this is positive, but where's the funding coming from? And same with Tanya Plibersek. Do you think that the funding is also a key factor in this debate? Um, funding's always a, always a factor. Funding, you know, comes, is the bottom line of everything. But the thing for, um, teachers is that funding is, oh, I won't speak to every teacher, but I'll speak for myself. Funding is always the least of my worries because I know I've been providing a champagne education on a beer budget the moment I started teaching. You know, it's, it's what teachers do. We make something out of nothing. We use the resources that we've got. We manage, even though the photocopy is broken down and the interactive whiteboard's blown, it's light bulb, and, you know, teachers make stuff happen. So, you know, getting tied up in funding and all those kinds of discussions, for a teacher, again, we kind of roll our eyes because we don't, you know, we just make it happen regardless. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that the former um, principal of Templestowe College uh, did mention that you can teach in a tent. Hopefully it's a good one. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, funding's always going to um, be a great benefit, you know, but what, what I think in Australia we like to do uh, as, you know, our, our politicians and our media love to keep coming back and let's talk about the funding, let's talk about the funding. No, let's get on with the job of, you know, looking after our teachers so they can teach well and our students mm. On education, let's shift our discussion over there. If we get that discussion right, then we'll know the kind of funding that we need. Yeah. 
There's so much I want to ask you, Gabby, but we're going to have to wrap up. I just want to ask one more question. So you've got a book coming out in a couple of months. Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure. Um, my book is called Teacher. It's a creative non-fiction memoir. It's about my life as a teacher. It's about why I started to, um, why I decided I wanted to become a teacher, um, those joyful years I had in the classroom and then the decline I experienced in probably in the last um, seven years and why I then decided to leave um, teaching. And I'm very proud to say that I've got beautiful endorsements, even from um, Noni Hazelhurst and Jane Caro, who have thrown their support behind this book. So I'm very excited it comes out early in July. And um, I'd love for some of your listeners to buy a copy. Great. Well, we'll definitely share it. I look forward to reading it and look forward to hearing more about the outcomes of Gonski 2.0. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Gabby. Thanks for having me, George. Cheers. It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun. Billabong Beach starting on the 8th of May at 11am till 12pm, 8.55am, 3CR Community Radio. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with Ayan, George, Lauren and myself, Anya. It's now 8.06am, so really you should be out of bed by now. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, Ayan and I attended an event at the Wheeler Centre, which featured Glory Edom, the founder of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club. The Well-Read Black Girl Book Club was founded in 2015 and centres black women writers and readers. It's become a huge movement now, both as a monthly book club and in terms of its online presence. In the Wheeler Centre event last week, Glory was interviewed by Centilla Chingape, an award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker, and they were later joined by Maxine Beniba-Clark, author of books such as Foreign Soil, The Patchwork Bike and The Hate Race, and sort of had their own book club meeting on stage. It was an evening celebrating black excellence and really expressed the need for diversity and the importance of having such diverse voices exist in the literary world. Joining us now in the studio to continue that discussion is Hella Ibrahim, Editorial Director of Jed Press. Jed Press is an online publication that exclusively works with and publishes people of colour. They state that their main purpose is to address the insufficient representation of marginalised peoples within the Australian literary landscape today and that they are committed to increasing diversity and visibility in the Australian literary landscape. 
literary landscape. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us today, Hella. No, thank you for having me. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Jed Press? Uh, sure. So, um, oh God, I'm talking about <laughs> myself. It's like, oh, what do I say? I like long walks on the beach. No. <laughs> um, so I've been working as an editor for a few years now. Um, you know, did the whole you know, Bachelor of Arts and then postgrad. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, like after many years, got into the interest, uh, got into the industry. Um, and my role at Jed Press is basically exactly exactly that. So I'm the editorial director, mm-hmm. which is a self-appointed title. I just <laughs> decided sound nice, so that's what I call myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, so I did found it, and um, I do, I would say, ninety percent of the work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're really d- underselling yourself here. Hey. <laughs> yeah. For real? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. so nice. Um, that is what I do, though, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how did it all begin? What is the reason behind Jed's birth? Oh, um, I mean, there were there were a number of reasons at the time when I started thinking about it, and um, there were conversations happening around unpaid internships, um, writers not being paid for legitimate work, um, you know, not, you know, all you see is um, white writers and award shows and um, that kind of thing. So the main reason for it, for the main reason I started it is because I just kind of got sick and tired of having the same conversation over and over. Um, mm. And I just thought, like, stop whining and do something. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, so I put it together... I put it together to create a space where you could, where as a person of colour, you could submit, and if you're a new writer, not a new writer, whatever, you could submit, you could be paid for your work, and you could work with an editor who actually cared about what you were writing um, without the need for uh, without the need for an emphasis on writing about POC issues, like mm. quote-unquote, where I find... I find a lot of the time when people of colour, black and other people of colour, are writing something, there's always this kind of imperative to write something about culture or write something about racism. And I'm like, you know what? We're actually really good at writing fiction. Mm. Like, where's the space for that? Yeah. Um, so that's how it came about. Yeah. Um, and why... So Jed Press um, obviously works with and publishes people of colour. And why do you think it's important for the work of people of colour to feature more prominently in the Australian literary space? Um, honestly, the fact that we even are here having this conversation mm. is one of the reasons. Yeah. Why is it such a big deal mm. that why do we need to create, why do we need to carve out a space, right? Because we're not there. We make up, God, I'm not even sure what the what the percentage is, but... We are not, I mean, I know we're a minority, but we're in Australia, we're, there's a lot of us. Mm. There's a lot of us. So uh, the last statistic I read um, on, like, new migrants, I think, was 20% of Australia. It, so Australia's population is new migrants, and that's not including the, those of us who have been here for actual generations. Mm. We, may, we are a significant population, and that's talking about migrants. Um, that's not even mentioning Indigenous people who, again, make up what was the statistic, 2.8%, like 3% mm. of the population, and you don't see them anywhere. You don't see them in literature. You don't see them... I mean, you study one book in high school written by a white person about Indigenous issues or about the invasion or whatever, and that's... Like, where are the Indigenous writers? So it's important to see us... I mean, it's important to see ourselves because we're here and we exist, and... We need to be able to see reflections of ourselves in the media. 
otherwise like otherwise all you get is the stereotypes that white people think of us so mm. i mean i'm going to talk about the sydney writers fest real quick yeah yeah go for it <laughs> <laughs> sorry just as an example of why in 2018 this is still needed um so at the sydney writers festival there was um a panel by the by sweatshop um in western sydney western sydney writers group um about owning a story and it was i think five or six people of color um sitting on a stage discuss discussing the need for their for the, for them to own their own stories for them to write a, about their communities in a real way um and it was fascinating conversation it was such a great panel you know ideas back and forth um talking about the need for sensitivity reading you know the need to claim space blah 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 and during it the the word shit came up in reference to white people i'm not going to get into the whole context of it now mm. but there was a context it wasn't well it was in reference to a quote by um Jenny Zhang who had said and i'm paraphrasing but um people don't like the don't want to face the idea that their urge to help comes from a place of entitlement and that um their good intentions cause harm mm. and so it kind of came about from there and you know the words white people and shit brought up and a white woman in the audience that's all she heard that's in an hour long conversation a really like important interesting conversation that's all she heard and so decided to like bring it up and attack the panel members and it turned into a whole the last 5 minutes of it was basically a white woman saying I did not ask to be born white and have all these privileges why are you calling me shit nobody actually pointed at her and said you're shit mm-hmm. but that's how she heard it mm-hmm. and that's the kind of thing and we're still having these conversations yes. there's um there's a film oh god i don't actually remember what it's called um but there is a f- there there was a film a documentary made in 1972 where the exact conversation happens mm-hmm. where you've got an indigenous man at the tent embassy talking to a white woman um uses strong language and then the reporter the documentary maker whoever he was talking to um says to him you know you would be heard if you were just nicer there is absolutely like i find your language obscene and he says what i find obscene is the incarceration rates of my people mm. what i find obscene is the police violence against my people mm. and this and that was 42 years ago and we're still having these conversations so and that's what happens when you don't have enough representation in media in writing in film in whatever because that's because people get to get to sit within their preconceived notions of who we are and what we are and never have to challenge themselves. Mm. Um so that's I think I've forgotten the question. But <laughs> hashtag and rant for that's yeah. kind of why is it actually no one more thing mm. on that topic also happened during the Sydney Writers Festival. So Evelyn um Araluen I'm totally mispronouncing her name. Mm. Sorry Evelyn. Um but Evelyn is an indigenous writer um indigenous writer and poet. and she tweeted out booked a venue to read black poetry in the historically aboriginal suburb of Redfern and a group of white people in the bar loudly demanded to know what the fuck what the sorry what the f this is as Lorna Munro read poetry in Wiradjuri so tell me how polite we need to be to our audience mm-hmm. and it's because of incidents like this that are still happening constantly where white people feel completely comfortable listening to an indigenous person while sitting on their sitting on stolen land and demanding to know why the, this indigenous person has taken up an inch of space. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You can't be angry, but 
you can be nice about it and we'll listen. Yeah, which which would, you know what, that sounds nice, right? Mm -hmm. Let's all be really super nice and then Mm -hmm. racism will end. Mm -hmm. Like, because we haven't been nice for the last, what, 200 plus years or thousands of years if we're talking outside of an Australian context. Mm -hmm. Um, The the problem has been us this whole time. We haven't been nice enough and that's why people are, like, they're racist to us because we're rude to them. Mm -hmm. Good to know. It's... It's mind-boggling. It's honestly mind-boggling. Mm. Um, and just practically, um, who do you accept submissions from on your incredible website? And how do people get in contact with you? Mm. Literally anyone. Mm. Um, <laughs> I will take submissions, from, well, excluding white people, and I'm totally fine saying that. And I've had people come at me for being divi- um, divisive, reverse racism. Reverse racism. Yeah. I, yeah. People, white people like to cry racism a lot. So white people, please don't submit, although I do like you and I would like you to support our work here and, you know, please read our work. Um, was that nice enough for you? Um, but literally anybody who identifies as a person of color, um, I say this often, but I tend to prioritize um, black voices in that, so indigenous and other black people, just because, like, you know, Pock are not doing great in the publishing industry, but God, they're doing worse. Like mm. they need. You, let's, let's focus on them. Yeah. Um, so your website is um, Jed Press. That's D J E D Press dot com dot au. Uh, um, no au. So oh, sorry, no au. Yep, JedPress dot com. Yeah, and you um, can also follow Hella on Twitter. It's um, D J E D underscore Press, um, mm-hmm. and you see a lot of rants there, which is um, really <laughs> good. <laughs> We're also on Facebook and very newly on Instagram, which is just at JedPress no mm. underscore. So yeah, please follow me on Instagram. <laughs> I need the followers. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hella. That Thanks for really having good. me. Three CR are selling Kafia. Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. During the 3CR Radiothon for 2018, Spoken Word presents an evening of live poetry featuring the outstanding talents of Jennifer Compton, Andy Jackson, Tariro Mavondo and Kylie Supsky plus an open mic recorded for broadcast on 3CR, Tuesday 15th of May from 7pm at Grub Food Van, 87 Moore Street, Fitzroy. And all proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are joined live in the studio now by Shio and Meg from PBS Radio. Good Hello. morning. Good morning. And I think that was a song that we were just playing for you, Shio. Yes. That, yes. I chose that one. <laughs> that was a Carl Jader. Um, I keep, keep saying, I keep saying it's hot sauce, but it's sauce sauce. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Not Beyonce. <laughs> um, so these two lovely people are in the studio because um, I'll give you a bit of a backstory. In 2016, PBS's Bethany Atkinson Quinton, who also is great to follow on Twitter, side note, founded an access training program to increase participation from women and gender diverse people in music broadcasting and in the wider music community. 
some 3CR folks and trainers, including Arish Noor from Women on the Line and the fabulous Namila Benson, were involved. Shio completed the training and now has her own show, Eternal Rhythm Thursday, which is from 11am until 1pm, and it's a jazz music show with spiritual and Afrocentric jazz, which is super cool. Yay. Is that was that a taste of what we could expect from your show? Oh yeah, serious jazz show. So, how did you um how did you find the training? Um, I found it very very inspiring. Um, I've always loved radio, so um, yeah, I really wanted to know how the whole thing worked. And um, Namela Benson's actually my um, dear friend, mm-hmm. and she really encouraged me to do this too. And um, at first it was pretty scary, all these buttons and stuff. And, yeah, it was quite intimidating. But, um, but uh, you know, like uh, meeting all these lovely people and everyone's from different background, that was quite a big thing for me. Um, uh, English not, is not my first language, so I've always kind of felt like... Um, Maybe I'm not good enough, <laughs> you know. Maybe my maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but um, it's it, it's always been about my um, love for music and mm. how um, you know it, it, at a certain point I kind of realised that you know what I should be just like be proud of the way I talk and mm. there was my accent and stuff and um, what I wanted to say and what I wanted to uh, share with people was more important than. Um, me feeling a little bit embarrassed about my accent or, you know, maybe I'm not good enough or it's mm. all about, yeah, I, I think doing all that training and uh, hanging out with those lovely people made me realise that, yeah, this is really, really good and mm. um, I'm really, really, really happy to be part of it. That's awesome. And so, Meg, what's your role at PBS? Yeah, so I'm the marketing manager at PBS, and um, but I actually used to work here at 3CR as well. Oh. And it was funny, I, um, I was just talking to Gav off air. Sorry. Hi, Gav. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, we were saying that actually my access to 3CR first came through a women's um, engineering course that 3CR ran as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think providing those spaces for women and gender non-conforming um, people um, to um, learn is really important. We're in that sort of um, safer environment and a supportive environment. And, um, yeah. So, yeah. And so um, you work at PBS now. Yeah, I do. Are yeah. you involved in programming at all? Um, I don't do any programming. In fact, I actually just did a refresher course for on-air announcing at PBS. So, well, it's working. You sound. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and sorry, I just want to. Um, yeah. I promised my children I'd say hello. Oh, so cute. <laughs> so hello, Danger, and hello, Ataria. Good morning. <laughs> Hope they're on their way to school. <laughs> um, Shio, actually, I'm in the car when your show is on, and I've heard it. And it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's great to put oh. a face to the name. Thank you so much. That's, that's often the case, isn't it? It's yeah. so nice to actually meet someone. Who present the show? Yeah, and, absolutely. Because you, know, you have this voice just you, just that you're listening to, and you're like, "Who is this person?" Ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank and you. it's nice to hear that you have actual people who listen to your show, and it's not just our mums. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that is really nice. <laughs> um, so you have a radiothon coming up as well. Yeah, we do. We've got the radio festival starting next week, so um, we just thought we'd come in and say hi. And um, you know, I, I think that. Melbourne has a fantastic community radio um, 
seen and you know we're all very supportive of each other so just wanted to come and say hello and um yeah if you um happen to be listening to pbs next week then um you know give us a call Mm. (laughs) and i think george is a big fan of Breakfast spreaders, is that? Yeah, yeah. I love Sister's Eye and yeah. my breakfast show. Yeah, 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 it is. I think that um, it's just a good reminder of how important community radio is. I think for all of us, it's just such a big part of our lives, and I think for mm. listeners as well. Yeah, it's such an important part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're so lucky. We do kind of flick, you know, all these different yeah. radio stations, yeah. and mm. yeah, it's just so lovely to be yeah. able to listen to all sorts of different opinions and different voices and different music yeah really. yeah because it connects you to so many things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get involved with mm. yeah. yeah and i think it's a pretty um you know not every city has um this amazing community of radio stations and also the way that it feeds into the music community as well you mm. know we all su- it, you know works to support each other and the live music venues um you know it's really works together to create this amazing environment for creativity and and you know that people can um you know live in these really artistic and creative ways because of you know that we all work together so yeah mm. this is so beautiful ah. <laughs> <laughs> the in the corner crying from just to enjoy do um, we need to give our listeners a bit more specifics about radio song i believe so um so like 3cr um, PBS obviously relies on listener support, and so their radio festival or radiothon starts on May 14th. So, gosh, that's soon, isn't it? Yeah, next week, yeah. and it runs all the way through to the 27th. Cool. Um, and yeah, you can um, you can go online pbsfm.org.au, um, or you can call up on 84151067. Um, yeah, but yeah, basically, we just wanted to come in and say hi, yeah. <laughs> and we love it. Um, but do support support community radio wherever you can. If you've got yeah. a few dollars clinking around. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that might be it from us actually for Tuesday Brecky for today. Mm. So um, thank you so much for joining us. And I am Susie tweeting. She's not looking at me. Anya says goodbye. <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you for Thanks Meg. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.